been blessed with a glorious spring day, haven't we? God is certainly working his beauty in the created world around us. I hope that you noticed some of that today. Love it when the red buds are still blooming, the dogwoods are popping out, and all that kind of thing. Thankful for uh, making it through the storms. The last couple of days, night before last. But God's blessed us richly, and especially that this is the first day of the week. And we can be together on such a beautiful day to honor him, thank him uh, for all that he's doing for us. This lesson has to do with the connection between unity and truth. I'm going to begin tonight uh, sort of reviewing some concepts that I know we've heard a lot about concerning the connection between unity and truth. And then the last half of the lesson, we're going to spend a little bit of time making some applications or looking at some ways to make applications from specific passages of Scripture about certain truths and how we can have unity uh, on those truths, which sometimes are controversial, uh, and yet we can have unity even on those truths. And so this by no means is an expansive lesson on the concepts of unity and truth, but I hope uh, it will be beneficial to us and... Uh, do us some good in the long run. John 17, if you'll turn in your Bibles there, that's where we'll start. John 17 contains a prayer. Jesus prays for himself, his apostles, and for all believers. We noted in a lesson just a couple of weeks ago that he prays for his disciples' protection. Notice with me in John 17, verse 11, in the midst of this prayer, he's talking to the Father. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. He's talking about his apostles, his disciples. These are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. So he's praying for their protection, for them to be guarded and kept by God, so that they may be one. You have both what he's praying for and the purpose of that. Further, Jesus says in John 17 and verse 17 about his apostles. He prays, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So the apostles would be set apart, made special, made holy for a special purpose by the word and through the word. Sanctify them, set them apart specially by your truth. Your word is truth. And then the very next verse, verse 18, he says... As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Two things about that. Number one, the word sent there is uh, the Greek verb apostolo. Yes, you hear apostle in that. <laughs> so Jesus says, I'm apostling. I'm sending them out as my apostles into the world. Secondly, you'll notice about that, it's connection to verse 17. They are sanctified, they are set apart for a special purpose. What's the purpose? They're going to take the word of truth into the world. We can make that connection pretty easily, right? That's the special sanctification that Jesus is praying regarding his apostles on this occasion. So all of that, again, is kind of by way of review. But just to notice that Jesus prays for his apostles for the word that sanctifies them, and for their unity, for their unity as they're protected from the evil one. And then notice with me in verse 20, where the prayer shifts. He says, I do not pray for these alone, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So now he's praying for us, for all who believe through the word of the apostles. And I suggest to you that the answer to Jesus' prayer is actually found in the prayer where he's praying that we may all be one who believe the words of the apostles. If what we believe is the words of the apostles, we'll be one. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That's pretty simple. But that's exactly what Jesus is praying about and for. I have noticed that we love the concept of unity. By we, I mean we here at Eastside, brethren generally, people in the denominational world as far as that goes. You might say, well, see, that can't be true. The word denomination means division. Oh, yeah, but they love the concept of unity. The concept of unity. (laughs) See, that's what I'm talking about. We all love the concept of unity. We see that Jesus loved the concept of unity. And yet, ironically, any differing and divided believers who ardently desire the unity that Jesus prays for are nonetheless divided believers. I teach a Bible class every year at a nearby school in which we cover the Gospel of John. I've been teaching that class. Um, This next year will be my 30th year. Every year when we go through John 17, I talk about the fact that Jesus is praying for our unity based on the Word of God. Almost every year, I'll revise that, every year (laughs) we have students in the class who are not particularly united about a lot of things, including their beliefs. And we talk about how to resolve that. And so the thing I'm sharing with you tonight is not new to you, it's not new to them really either, because the way to resolve that is let's believe the words of the apostles. If we do that, again, we're all going to be on the same page. We're all going to be united. We don't have unity among all those who believe. But the problem is, are we believing actually through the words of the apostles? Are we believing actually the words of the apostles? Do we understand that unity comes directly from the word of God delivered to us through Jesus' apostles? Not sure that we understand that. Unity must be based on God's word. So that brings us to uh, examine a little bit more about the context here in John 17, but also I want you to turn, maybe keep a finger over in John 16 and 17, but turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. It's another great passage in the Bible, uh, enjoining unity. And we find here that the truth of God's word, again, is what's going to bring unity. 
Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God is not in this passage, Paul is not in this passage, inviting us to create unity. He's inviting us to keep the unity that he's already created. God has given to us what we are to know and believe and do and think as a unit, as one thing. It's one thing. It's very monolithic. All right? It's one thing. We are to believe that. And when we do, all together, we'll have unity. We're to keep the unity of the Spirit. In the next few verses, you see that really clearly, don't you? For he goes on to say, next breath, verse 4, there is one body, there is one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. That one God is above all of us and in all of us and works through all of us. There is one faith, just one. You see that? All of that comes from the Spirit. That's what we're supposed to be keeping. The unity that's come through the Spirit. Again, these are not really new concepts to us, I'm sure. They're actually not new concepts to most of the divided religious world as concepts. They're not new. But truth is a singularity. God's truth is a singularity. It's a single thing. And because it is, it demands unity to all who believe it. From all who believe it. And if we're not united, it's not because truth is disjointed. See, that's the, that's the answer of modern man. See, the problem, is we, we can't get along, we can't agree on anything because there are all kinds of different truths. You have your truth, I have my truth. Truth is flexible, truth, truth is malleable. There's no such thing as, you know, one truth. And that's not only what causes division in religion, it causes division in politics, in society in general. The concept that, that truth is not stable. But that's not a biblical idea. Truth is objective. Truth is real. And as I said, it's a singularity. It's a single thing. The unity of the Spirit is based on the truth the Spirit gave to the apostles. So go back now, just quickly. We're going to go back to Ephesians again in a minute. But go back and look at the context leading up to this prayer in uh, John 17 that Jesus prays. And we just noticed a few verses there, but if we back up just a little bit into the middle of the last chapter, this, all of this is the night Jesus was betrayed. He's meeting with his uh, disciples, now just 11 of them in the room, and he says to them in John 16 and verse 13, that when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Remember, in John 17, he's going to be, pra- he's, he prays that they'll be sanctified by the truth of God's word. God's word is truth. Now he's telling them, he told them previously, how they're going to get the truth. How the truth's going to come to them. Here's what he's saying. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will speak 
He will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he will take of mine and declare it to you. The apostles were going to be given the truth. All the truth. And Jesus says in John 17, 17, God's word is truth. So he's talking about God's word there being given to the apostles. Notice the Spirit gives that. The same Spirit who in Ephesians 4 now, we were just to keep the unity of the Spirit, which comes from what? The Word that He gave the apostles. That's what Jesus prays about. The Gospel has the power to bring together people of vastly diverse backgrounds and understandings. God's Word is what we believe. Period. When it's the view that we operate on, period, we're going to have unity. No matter who we are, no matter who we come, where we come from. It is the truth that sanctifies. It is the truth that unifies. However, when we add human feelings, emotions, concern about our backgrounds, our preferences to the mix, we will reject unity because we're rejecting truth. Feelings are real, but they have no intellect. They're not smart. They're not good guides. They're good motivators but not good guides. The truth is our guide. When we go back to Ephesians, we notice Paul's discussion of one of the biggest divides among peoples in human history was that between Jews and Gentiles. And part of that was, if you think about it, initiated by God. God wanted his people in the Old Testament, as we're studying in our Bible classes right now, to be a completely separate people. That was kind of the whole deal, right? Their separation, their sanctification. How many times is that used in the book of Leviticus? The word holy, we said the other night in our Bible class, which has to do again with, with separation and purity. The word holy is used 95 times in the English Bible in the book of Leviticus, where he's telling his people, I want you to be different. They're as different as they could be. In many ways, especially if they would have done what God said from the nations round about them. And yet, God's plan also was to bring those very different people together with all kinds of different people in the world who the New Testament calls Gentiles. And the amazing thing is that Jesus did that. And Ephesians 2 talks about that. We're not going to look at the entirety of Ephesians 2, but just to pick up in verse 17, after he's talked about Christ has made Reconcile both in one body, verse 16, through the cross, putting to death the enmity. In verse 17 he says, he came and preached peace to those who were afar off. When somebody preaches, what are, they, what are they doing? They're sharing God's word, right? Which is the truth of the Spirit. Jesus, in coming, preached peace to those who were afar off. That's the Gentiles. And peace to those who were near, that's the Jews. 
For through Him we both have access by, here you go again, one Spirit. The Spirit's not revealing a whole bunch of different disparate concepts. It's one truth the Spirit is revealing. For through Him we have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the, household, with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What do the apostles and prophets have to do with it? Uh, they're the ones that got the truth. They got the word that Jesus brought and that unified both Jews and Gentiles. Real unity can never be reached if all the parties are not faithful to the truth of God's word and honest with each other. We want to pray for unity? We want to look at John 17 and get all excited about Jesus' prayer? I do. Oh, I want that to come true. But we better get serious about it and understand what it's going to take. This is what I share in my class every year. It's going to take more than wishful thinking. It's going to take more than, oh, this, this great affinity, this love in, in our hearts for the concept of unity. It's going to take way more than that. It's going to take a determination to learn God's truth as it is and accept it as it is. Nothing else, nothing less, nothing more. Then we'll have unity. How many of us are willing to do that? To put behind us our think-sos and the way we've always done it and what my mama said and what my grandmama said and what some preacher I love said and say, here's what the Bible says and here's where we're going to stand. Who will stand with us? Then we'll have unity through the apostles' word, the unity that Jesus prayed for. In Ephesians 4, look what, look what Paul says here. In verse 14, he talks about not being children talk, tossed to and fro by false doctrine. But he says in verse 15, but speaking truth in love. Now, everybody got what the truth is, right? <laughs> truth is God's word delivered by the apostles through the Spirit, right? Speaking truth in love. Tr speaking truth in love. We may grow up in all things into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Build up as one body in Christ based upon speaking the truth in love. The truth in love. I don't think any of that's new to anybody. I hope it's not. But the truth is, reality is, it's not new to a lot of people with whom tonight we're divided. I'd like to look then at three examples of how we can build unity based on truth and what it takes to do that. The first of them, 
what do we do with the truth of God's word if we want unity on the matter of circumcision? Now this, I know, you know, it's not controversial nowadays, but it certainly was back in New Testament times, and this will serve as sort of a model or a guide to help us with the next couple of things that we'll be looking at. So think about this with me. In, in Acts 15, you have sort of the problem of circumcision in the early church described to us. Um, and, and as I said, we, we find that division results from human beliefs and practices that are not according to the truth. And the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel, the truth brought by the apostles. And here in Acts 15 and verse 1, you had a problem like that. You had up in Antioch, there were certain men uh, that came down from Judea and taught the brethren, saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So that's what they're teaching. You've got to be circumcised to be saved. Well, that was certainly the custom of Moses, although Moses didn't talk about salvation. You had to be circumcised to be uh, a part of the nation of Israel. But they're saying you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul and Barnabas uh, didn't agree with that, and there was no small discussion, and so they all went up to Jerusalem to discuss it with the apostles and elders that were there. And after some discussion among themselves and the Holy Spirit helping them, they, they wrote a letter out to the Gentile churches. And part of that is uh, found in Acts chapter 15 and in verse 24 where I'm reading. Writing now to the Gentile churches who were troubled by this perversion of the truth. And here's how they answered what these false teachers had been saying about this point of circumcision. They said, we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. <laughs> there was the word of God given by the Spirit to the apostles and prophets never said that. It never said it. We gave no such commandment like that. And so these people were going not on what the Spirit had said, but on what the Spirit hadn't said. And making some assumptions concerning that to bind this matter of circumcision. That should have been clear to everybody in the church after that letter in Acts 15 was written. It was not. The division continued, apparently, for decades among Jewish Christians. And even some people who were there, who had part in making this true, had trouble sticking with the truth of God's word when it came to the matter. You might want to turn over to the book of Galatians. We're going to notice a couple of things there now. Christians, some of them still acted as if circumcision were required. They still taught that. They still pressed that. You know why they did? Because they didn't want to be persecuted. They didn't want to be left out of the mainstream of their religious culture, of Jewish society. And so Paul makes that point in Galatians 6 and verse 12. The book of Galatians, he writes a lot about this problem. 
of these Judaizing teachers teaching the necessity of circumcision. But Galatians 6, kind of winding that up, he says, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, they compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. Why do they, why are they, why are they insisting on circumcision? Why are they compelling people to be circumcised? Well, he gives the first reason first. He says, because they want to make a good showing in the flesh. They want to look good to people. They want uh, those who are high and holy in Jewish society, their neighbors and friends, to like them. To think they're cool because you guys are even getting the Gentiles to be circumcised. Way to go. That's what they want. And what they, don't, what, what, what they don't want is they don't want to be persecuted. They don't want to lose their friends and be mistreated in their culture because all of a sudden they're saying you don't have to be circumcised, at least in Gentiles. That pressure, which we sometimes call peer pressure, was so great that even people like Peter and Barnabas were affected by it. You know what Paul talks about as he introduces this subject matter in Galatians chapter 2. In verse 11, he says, When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Paul doesn't mean those that were circumcised. Lots of folks were circumcised, including Paul himself. But those who were pushing this idea of circumcision. Peter? Peter, who in Acts 15 was one of the ones who stood up and said, you know, I was the first one to go to a Gentile and preach him the gospel, by the way, and God approved of that. And they weren't required to be circumcised. They were baptized, you know. Peter and Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Yet, because of this pressure, this feeling of, oh, what will the guys from James think? What will the people of the circumcision think if they catch us eating with the Gentiles? You see, these uncircumcised believers. You don't think that's a problem still today? Oh, not the circumcision bit. But the concept of here's what the truth says, but I can't really accept what the truth says because I'm going to lose a friend over here or there's people who are really you know, popular in our culture, in our society, or in our churches, and they're not going to like me if I, if I stand for what the truth says. And so I'm highly motivated all of a sudden not to stand for what the truth says. And when I make that decision, guess what happens? It's not unity. It's division. Every time. So let's go on and look at a couple of quick examples. How could this possibly apply to us? What do we do with God's word on praising him in song? Ephesians 5.19, we're to be singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. Colossians 3.16 and 17, 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I've always thought it interesting that verse 17 comes right after verse 16. (laughs) The one that tells us what to do in praising God in song, the next verse says, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord. With his permission, with his authority, under his rule. Now, I just want to tell you, we can really easily be united on what these texts say. It's it's not even a little bit hard. These texts, however, do not say one thing about instrumental music. You can read it backwards, forwards, upside down. It doesn't say anything about instrumental music. It says to sing. Now that's the truth that came from the apostles through the Spirit by Jesus Christ. Are we going to just accept the truth or something else? Many folks want to add to that truth. Maybe because their denominational friends or even friends in so-called churches of Christ have instrumental music and some of them insist on instrumental music. They fear that their friends will think less of them. Well, you guys, what do you mean you can't have instruments of music? Why not? Y'all are out of step. And then you have these folks that they look at this truth plainly said, stated in these two verses, and they start making allowances for folks to use instruments of music in worship. And they blame people who are just trying to say what the verses say for causing the division. Wow. Wow. Do we want to be united on the truth or not? Do we understand that unity comes from from sticking with the truth of God's word? You know what was said about Peter and Barnabas and the hypocrisy that they fell into? It was said that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 14. They were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Here's what I'm pleading for tonight. That we, all of us, and I'm pleading with anybody who's going to examine scriptures with us, to be straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Let's be honest with one another. Let's be honest with the truth. Back in in, in Ephesians... Paul had had said to us, speak the truth one to another. You're members of one another. You're part of the same body. You have to tell the truth. You have to speak the truth. You have to stand on the truth if we're to have unity. That's what we're pleading for. What do we do with God's word on praising him in song? The truth on praising Him in song. What do we do with God's Word on drinking wine? 
me just, I'm going to share, I, I know I've got long sermons on wine and alcohol and things. I'm just going to share a few verses with you. Let's see what the truth is. Ephesians 5.18, as long as we're in Ephesians. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay. Being drunk, we don't want to do that. Everybody agree on that? We're good with that, right? Most of us, anyway. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23. Paul tells Timothy, No longer drink only a little water, but use a little wine. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. So, take a little wine for your sicknesses. Infirmities are sicknesses. If it helps a sickness, take a little wine. Everybody okay with that? Okay. Don't take much wine. Titus chapter 2 and verse 3, Older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine. Right. Well, we just learned that Timothy could take a little wine for medicine. So, of course you wouldn't be given to much wine if you were just taking a little wine for medicine, right? That makes sense. Nobody has a problem with that. Romans 14, verse 21. Don't drink it if it causes a brother to stumble. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything which your brother stumbles or is offended or made weak. So as far as I see, that verse says, don't drink it if it offends, causes somebody to stumble, or leads them astray. I'm down with that. Y'all? 1 Peter 4 and verse 3. We've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. We walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. King James Version says banquetings. So I don't want to be at a drinking party. You know, that's a party where there's drinking, by the way. That's a no-no. So I'm not going to do that. Y'all down with that? That's just the truth. That's just what it says. So how about let's just do what it says, okay? And instead of wrangling around, trying to justify going ahead and drinking when you're at the party, or taking not just a little wine for medicine, but a lot of it for something else, let's not try to justify. That's not in the scriptures. Division occurs when we begin to allow for things that the scriptures clearly prohibit. Because friends in the world or in denominations or even in the Lord's church think that things are okay to do and that certain things are okay at social gatherings, some feel pressure to do it. And they'll look at what the truth says and they'll try to justify something else. Jesus prayed for unity. For the unity of those who believe the words of the apostles. Are we going to believe the words of the apostles or not? That's what I'm pleading for. It's very simple. And I'm speaking this uh, if I know my heart and my motivation out of love. Love for brethren love for the truth, love for Jesus. 
If we believe the words of the apostles, as I said earlier, nothing else, nothing less, nothing more, then we can have unity. I'd like to end with this one verse. Romans 15, I guess it's two verses, five and six. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded. That's what we want. We want to be one, to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. That's the rub right there. To just accept what Jesus has said in his word through his apostles. We can be like-minded if we'll do that. That we, we may with one mind and one mouth glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we want to do, surely. It's not just we in this room. As I said earlier, people all over the world who, who, who love the concept of unity. But we are never going to have it if we keep on fiddling with the truth of God's Word. It must be based on doing what is according to Christ Jesus. Thank you so much for your good attention tonight. I hope the lesson's been helpful. Might be speaking to somebody tonight who is not in the body of Christ. It's a great place to be. It's where salvation is. We learn in Scripture that we are all baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians 12. And if you've not become a part of the body of Christ, the body of the saved, you tonight can turn away from the world, believe in Jesus, confess his name, and be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. We'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.